everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. No Daryl Grove with me. He should be back in studio tomorrow. But instead, I'm going to be talking about some slightly difficult topics with Mr. Leander Sharlockins of Yahoo Sports, also a lecturer at Marist College. Uh, we're going to be getting into Serginho Dest. There was some news today about his uh, sort of decision to play for the Netherlands or the United States. It's, uh, it's not bleak. Don't worry, U.S. fans. But it's not like the best news either. It's somewhere in between. But we get into that and kind of what may influence his decision. Uh, then we kind of focus primarily on uh, an article Leander recently wrote for Yahoo about sort of racism in Serie A, why there seem to be so many more instances of it this season, and why it sort of hasn't been dealt with, the sort of logic behind the failure to deal with it and how it allows Italian officials to continue to not deal with it. And we close out by talking about sports journalism in the modern era. So again, maybe those aren't the most lighthearted of topics, but I would say they are the most like useful and uh, necessary topics to be discussed. Uh, and Leander does so with a plum. I'm not sure what that word means, but I'm pretty sure it means with grace and skill, and that's what he used. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to me uh, asking questions to Leander Sharlockins of Yahoo Sports. Joining me on the other end of the line, I've got Leander Sharlockins of Yahoo Sports and a lecturer at Marist College. Leander, thank you for taking the time to chat today. And did I get that name roughly right to the pronunciation thereof? You got it magnificently All right. right. <laughs> All right. I'm very glad to make my uh, debut appearance. Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised it's been so long because I think we first met way back when Charlie Davies was playing for DC United and you were writing features about him. But that was very brief. Uh, that was when I think we were only like one day a week and still on the radio here in Richmond. Uh, different times, but we've got still got like familiar things to talk about with uh, uh, potential Americans abroad and uh, the U.S. national team, but then also some uh, more pressing issues from today, like racism in Italy. Uh, so we've got some big topics to discuss. But I did want to start a little bit with your background, uh, because your Marist College bio explains that Leander was born in the Netherlands, grew up in Belgium, went to college in London, attended graduate school in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm going to say that that puts you in a fairly solid position to discuss uh, Serginho Dest. Uh, you tweeted out a translation <laughs> of some comments made by him earlier today. It sounds like maybe he hasn't actually made up his decision. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I'm reading it. I mean, honestly, I, I and I, I tweeted sort of through my thoughts a, a few days ago as well. You know, all things being equal, if, if he's sort of on the fence my inclination was that he would choose for the Netherlands uh, purely for kind of logistical reasons, mm -hmm. if, if all else is equal to him. Because if, if you kind of look at the different variables, um, you know, the Dutch have missed two out of the last five World Cups, if I'm getting my math right. The U.S. has missed one. Obviously, neither one of them is likely to miss a ton of World Cups. So that's kind of the same. The Dutch are obviously a bit more competitive, but at the same time, there's more competition for that spot, right? Um, that being said, um, the right back spot for the Netherlands right now is actually pretty thin. There are a few guys that you thought were going to be around for a long time and kind of manning that spot, but at the same time, um, nobody's really made it theirs. I mean, Gregory van der Veel's career just kind of disintegrated much earlier than anybody expected. Joel Veltman plays right back, but he's not a real right back. He's a center back. Uh, Dumfries and Hatteboer, uh, neither of them have really made that spot theirs, even though they're, they're both quite talented. Kenny Tete is, is riding the bench at Lyon. Um, so, you know, suddenly when it seemed like there were four or five guys ahead of him, Maybe it might just be that there's nobody ahead of him or that he's, that he's um, at the very least going to be platooning in that spot. So I, I don't imagine that he expected 
um, to have opportunities to play for both nations as, as an 18 year old. Um, and so that's, that's possibly, you know, without trying to read an 18 year old's mind, uh, created a bit of a quandary for him. So unless he feels a really strong pull between the two programs, it was my inclination that he'd be um, more predisposed to the Netherlands because he grew up there, because he speaks the language better, to be honest with you. Um, and because the, the, the logistical piece to this, you can't really underestimate. I mean, we saw that with Timmy Chandler, right? Where it's, it's a really big um, ask on a player to come over six times a year for a camp, for a game here, to, to go down to Costa Rica and play a game and then fly right back and, and be with your club. Like it's, it adds a significant strain to your season um, that, that he can avoid by, by staying with the Netherlands. So, so that's why I thought, you know, if, if, if he's 50, 50 right now, I'm guessing he'll go with the Netherlands, but it really does sound from this interview that he gave to, uh, to the Dutch version of Fox sports that he just doesn't know yet that he, he said he had invitations from both. He said he turned both of them down. He's had conversations with Ronald Koeman or at least one of them. Um, he's talked to Greg Burhalter, obviously, and, and he just hasn't figured it out yet. Um, so it, it's maybe it's a toss up. Who knows? Um, and then like there were tweets today. Roger Gonzalez tweeted out that a form, uh, an IX teammate of Dutch that or of Dest that isn't Dutch. Whew, got that one out. Uh, he's like said that maybe he's favoring the U.S. national team over the Dutch national team with his concern being playing time. But it does feel like that's the thing where we're just going to keep getting different stories and different kind of like clickbaity headlines. Would you advise people who are kind of nervous about Serginho Dest to sort of avoid reading too much into it until we have actual news? Or do you think like there's always going to be leaks? There's always going to be news, and maybe some of it is more genuine than others yeah uh, all of those all of the above <laughs> um you, you know I, I really genuinely have the sense and, and i got that sense when i when i asked him in person a few weeks ago when he was in for the u.s uh, mexico game that he just hasn't made up his mind yet yeah. i mean again he's 18 years old and he's got to make this decision that if if his career pans out the way that that he and and everybody hopes it will that's a decision he's going to have to live with for, you know, a decade, a decade and a half. So he doesn't want to get it wrong. And I, I genuinely got the sense that he just is still working through his options and is, is still trying to, you know, work out the pros and cons of, of each of them. So, you know, what the Netherlands obviously is, is, the, is a bit more prestigious as a program, perhaps, or, or at least a little bit more successful historically but it's going to be more competitive. Um, the U.S. he's played with, you know, he's been to, to two Youth World Cups with the U.S., so that's kind of the, the program that nurtured him and that brought him along and that, you know, maybe he, he didn't expect that he would really have the choice, but now he does. Um, so I really wouldn't read anything into any of this stuff and, and just kind of let it play out because we'll, we'll know soon enough. He figured um, he had to make a decision in the next month, so probably for the, for the November camps, um, and, um, you know, un until it's clear in his mind, there's really no sense in us trying to figure it out, mm. uh, w without being privy to, to that internal dialogue that he's having. So that is an excellent answer. I heard everything you said. I agree with everything you said. I'm still going to ask one more question about it, though. Um, as you said, you've interacted with him. I have not. I've never met him. Um, like, this is probably going to sound like a stupid question. I apologize in advance. But, like, 
Does he strike you as a youngster who is sort of more interested in the United States, having grown up in the Netherlands? Because it does feel like that is a very big factor for a lot of dual nationals in choosing to represent the United States is sort of like what the United States was for them growing up and sort of like it being a center of culture in a lot of ways and pop culture at that. Like, does he seem like a person who's kind of interested in those things or does he seem from your interactions with him like a kind of Dutch kid who grew up in the Netherlands? I mean, it's it's hard to say, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you when you talk to someone in the mix zone, you get like four minutes with them. Very true. Um, but, <laughs> he but he, right. did, he didn't that, espouse so, all of his cultural philosophy in those four minutes. <laughs> well, you're, you're right in that for a lot of national teamers, Jermaine Jones, Terrence Boyd in particular, like the American piece of their heritage was really important to them and something that was kind of closed off to them growing up in Europe with a father who maybe wasn't around or or who maybe they they didn't have the best relationship with. And and so then it becomes kind of a psychological matter as well. I don't know if that's true for Serginho. I suspect that it's not, to be honest with you. Um, but he does seem to have a really good head on his shoulders. He he seems super mature and super thoughtful. Again, for an 18-year-old, and in, in my, my other job as a college teacher, I, I deal with a lot of uh, young men his age, and, and he really did struck me as, as being very composed and very level-headed. Um, what I will say is that you know, his his English, while good and perfectly passable, it's not as good as some of the other dual nationals that we've had. So maybe if if we really want to get into the nitty gritty and, and try to read meaning into small things, maybe that's a suggestion that his American sort of sense of identity isn't as strong as, as it has been in some others like Jermaine Jones, who is who is perfectly fluid the day he in English the day he arrived in the program. That that's that's maybe less true for Serginho. So in in that sense, he he very much is a Dutch kid who also happens to have come up through the American Youth National Team program. I I don't know how else to ask this aside from like because I know you are the objective journalist, but you are also an Ajax fan, from what I understand. Uh, do you have any vested interest in this? Do you like like does it impact your rooting for him and Ajax if he's playing for the U.S. National Team or playing for the uh, for the Netherlands? We're we're delving deep into the into the burrows of my psyche now. Um, I, I, I'd really not consider that to be honest. And and the thing about being an Ajax fan is that if you know that he's really good, he's going to be gone in two years anyway. Ah, good point. Uh, so so what does it matter at that point? Um, but you know, I, I I wouldn't mind seeing him on the U.S. national team. I, I think it could be fun. I think he's a player that that fits what Greg Berhalter's trying to do really really well. Something interesting that he told me is that. Um, Dest actually has a more attacking role within the U.S. national team uh, system than he does within Ajax, which I thought was sort of funny because the U.S. obviously has this reputation of being more of a historically a, a gritty bunker and counter type team, whereas Ajax plays this expansive soccer. Um, so I think he's a really good fit. I think it's it's sort of magical that he can play right back and left back. And you kind of, if he does choose the U.S., you wish you could clone him and playing on play him on both sides. Um, but, you know, he, he's such an obvious fit for either program that that's just sort of one more complicating factor. Hey, folks, this is Taylor jumping into the middle of a fairly serious uh, interview with Leander Sharlockins to talk about a slightly less serious but still important uh, topic, which is today's sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the number one uh, meal kit delivery service in the U.S. You can get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. All you have to do is cook and enjoy. 
HelloFresh also makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality, regardless of your comfort in the kitchen. And as I kind of indicated on the show the other day, it also makes it easier for me to never go outside, which I'm not necessarily sure is a good thing, because when Daryl's out of town, uh, I can record remotely, which means I could be at home, which means I could just have HelloFresh shipped right to my door. And then I really never have to leave the like physical environs of my home, which probably isn't the best thing. Socializing is useful, and being around other humans equally useful. But if you are cooking by yourself, or you know maybe you're making it into a dinner date or something like that, HelloFresh provides step-by-step recipes to pre-measured ingredients, uh, so you'll have everything you need to get a wow-worthy dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes, so you can say goodbye to endless grocery store trips uh, and take out food, take out food that is maybe maybe never as fulfilling and you kind of never feel as good as if you'd made it yourself. Uh, I believe it was Hannibal Lecter from the Hannibal Lecter TV show who said, why pay for something that I know I can make better myself? Uh, HelloFresh does not offer you maybe the options that Hannibal would enjoy, but they do... uh, have something for pretty much everyone else. They've got family recipes, calorie smart and vegetarian options, uh, a fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers. So everything you need to make delicious home-cooked recipes, and you can do so at a discount because they're also offering you $80 off your first month of HelloFresh. So you go to HelloFresh.com slash TSS80 and enter the code TSS80 at checkout. One more time, to break out of your dinner rut with HelloFresh's 20-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week and to get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, you go to HelloFresh.com slash TSS80 and enter TSS80 at checkout. Thank you very, very much to HelloFresh Fresh for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to my conversation with Leander Sharlakins of Yahoo Sports. Well, you've made me entirely too optimistic now with the idea of cloning him and playing him in both spots. So I'm going to remove that optimism instead and move to a like more serious, definitely more of a downbeat topic uh, because you wrote a great piece for Yahoo about uh, these sort of like recent instances of racism in uh, Serie A and how kind of consistent they have been this season. To an outsider, uh, which is me, uh, it does seem like there seem to be more racist incidents in Serie A and Italian national team matches than in any other league or country. Country, at least in Western Europe. Do you feel like that is the case, or is it maybe just that they seem to have a greatest number of incidents that go unpunished? So, so that's an interesting question. Um, I do think there's there's a stronger racism problem there than, than you see in other leagues, and it seems largely to be born of ignorance, and, and I don't want to cast aspersions on, on Italy as a nation or all fan bases and all teams, Um but you you have sort of a sense there that when you see the explanations from the people that are involved, right? When you have the Inter Milan fans telling their own player, Romelu Lukaku, what you experienced, the, the monkey noises, was not actually racism. We're, we're sorry if you feel that that was racism, but that's really not what happened. Uh, the, the exact quote from their statement is, you have to understand that Italy is not like many other North European countries where racism is a real problem. And then they sort of said, you know, we just do that to put off the other player. Um, So it seems like they don't understand the difference entirely between being racist and committing racist acts. Mm -hmm. And that that was kind of echoed even when the team president said that they didn't mean anything by it. And then you see when there were more recent incidents, like the Verona fans who said, you know, these are just cliches and old labels, when Frank Kessie of of us. AC Milan was racially racially abused. Um, And then you had it again at the Atalanta-Fiorentina game um, when Dalbera, who's a a Fiorentina defender from Brazil, um, actually signaled to the referee that he'd been racially abused and they stopped the game for a little bit. Um, 
when both fans or both managers of both the teams said, no, actually, you know, that, that, that really wasn't racism. It was just insults. Right. And Vincenzo Montella, the Fiorentina manager said, you know, I'm from Naples. I get insulted all the time. I don't think it's racist. It's just part of soccer. And so then you get into kind of murkier territory where there is that um, tradition almost in Italian soccer of kind of going after not just the other team's players, but where they're from, right? And and Napoli famously is is the Italian city and the Italian club that's looked down on by the entire nation. And so to Montella's mind, being insulted and being racially abused is the same thing. And that seems to be the thing that gets conflated where they don't really see a difference between just kind of, um, you know, getting on another team's players, getting um, sort of personal to kind of put them off and being racist. And and until that um, distinction is made, they're going to have a hard time rooting this out because they don't seem to think this is a problem. So like maybe, maybe this exists everywhere and I just don't realize it. But to me, that distinction is very unique to Italy. The idea of like, ah, no, we're just kind of talking. And like, I know that gets thrown around as like, oh, it's locker room talk or whatever. But like, it being a sort of like system wide, like, no, this is just how it is. We don't have that problem. Northern Europe does. Like, do you get an idea as to why that seems like such a pervasive idea in Italy? Is it just that that's how it's always been? I don't know that it's entirely Italian, right? Because okay. you, you saw it at Manchester City when they had the incident where Bernardo, Bernardo Silva True. tweeted mm-hmm. a plainly racist image at his teammate, Benjamin Mendy, and, and Mendy thought it was fine, and Pep Guardiola thought it was fine, and they said, these are just two friends having a laugh. Um, can't two friends make a joke between them? To which you say, well, no, actually, it wasn't a joke between them. It was on Twitter. Everybody saw it. And that kind of um, ignorance about... A, a joke or or something not being meant with with racist intentions uh automatically not being racist that that ignorance is is what has to be addressed and and that maybe seems to be stronger in Italy where they do have that culture of of going after your opponents in the most vicious way possible um that that I think is is the battleground where this has to be fought out where you have to kind of go to these fans and say, look, that's that's not okay. We even if you're not a racist um, in in sort of an ideological way, what you're doing is racist, and and that's sort of where we draw the line. But that's going to be really hard to do when managers and team presidents and you know the the fan groups and from the looks of it, also the Italian Federation that that keeps washing its hands clean of this and and not really giving out real punishments don't sort of appreciate the difference. Do, do you get the idea that that's like, like like managers and people in like executives, people in charge of the league? Is that them sort of actually saying like, no, this behavior is fine. Like we're just kind of like talking trash. It's not racism. Or, or do you feel like maybe it's just not wanting to deal with it because of such a ma- like how big the issue is going to be? Like, I think it was the Verona owner or manager came out and said like, 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 how dare you call the city of Verona racist? And it was like, well, that wasn't the allegation. Like the allegation was that some of your right. fans are racist. And it, and, it, and I can't tell if that's a like intentional move to sort of, like basically make it a larger issue and then be like, it isn't a larger issue or if it is actually them sort of willingly sidestepping a problem because they don't really want to have to deal with it. I think there's two pieces to it. One is the tribalism and, and just the, the, the raw sort of atavistic um, 
adversarialism that, that you have within soccer where, you know, anytime you're accused of something, it must mean that they hate your team and they're not being fair and, and they're trying to smear you. And, and it's that whole sort of um, fake news culture that's that's developed within soccer where anything that's that's said about your team that's not flattering must be coming from from a, a sort of evil place. Right. So So that's one part of it. I think the other is coming to grips with your with your own biases and with your own flaws and then addressing a problem that is so huge and sort of acknowledging that as a community you've been wrong about this and you've been wrong about it for a long time and and in a really big way um it it takes a lot to sort of reckon with that and i think it's a lot easier to just explain it away i mean it's it's like the the chant that the uh that the Mexican national yeah. team fans do, right? That, that we won't say out loud, but that starts with a P. You know, just kind of addressing that issue first requires a, a recognition of wrongdoing in yourself. And then secondly, you have to, you know, um, root out something that's that's so deeply entrenched in your supporter culture. And that's such a big part of it. And I think just the, the A, the realization of it, and B, trying to figure out how to actually change it is is so daunting that it's that it's just a lot easier to pretend that oh it's it's not a big deal this, there isn't a problem here move along. I'm I'm asking you a lot of very big questions and I appreciate how quickly you're able to answer them. This one again kind of big. Like what do you think progress then looks like? Because it doesn't seem like an issue that just kind of gets resolved overnight and suddenly all of these things stop. Uh, but it also seems like that is the way it should go. So, like, I struggle to see, like, yeah. like how do you how do you think we can gauge, like, if things are being properly addressed, if things are calming down? Is it just that we hear about them less, or is it that things are like teams are actually being punished and held accountable for their fans? I, I think that's that's the big part of it. You know, accountability. I think the way to solve this is you have to start within the sport and with those players and with those managers that that think this is fine and sort of have an old fashioned HR sit down and say, look, this, we're going to need to do some sensitivity training here or whatever you want to call it. And, and kind of, these are all the ways in which you're behaving that are not acceptable and, and start with developing that understanding within the sport, because if it comes from the outside, if it comes from the press, if it comes from, you know, talking heads on TV, if it comes from a, a federation or league kind of imposing this teams will always sort of put their back up and mm -hmm. say, you know, oh, you're you're just targeting us. You're just picking on us. It, the understanding has to come from within the clubs, so that it doesn't seem like they're being attacked from the outside, which is always going to be sort of the the reaction that they default to. And then from there, once you sort of develop that, you need to start punishing it in real ways, right? Docking teams points or making them play in front of empty stadiums, or there's different things you can do rather than having these these sad little fines or or doing nothing at all. And then from there, you can, I think, start to measure these things by how many incidents persist. Do you think one other like kind of reaction to this or way that maybe it gets resolved is if players stop wanting to play there? Because I think it was Demba Ba, I think, tweeted out like, this is why I didn't want to play in Italy uh, in response to the uh, Interfans defending Cagliari in the face of uh, Lukaku. And it did make me wonder, because it's not just like, we, we do talk a lot about black players, but I read an article where they were saying there was like a 14-year-old, I think it was like half Ecuadorian kid who's a goalkeeper who was getting like racist abuse. And it's, it does seem like it's, like it, it's regardless of skin color, there's a lot of racism issues. And I do wonder if like if players stop playing there, does that sort of force the hands of these owners and managers? 
I wish it would, but I don't think it will. I mean, there for years and years and years, nobody of color wanted to play for Lazio because they knew that they were going to be abused by their own fans. And, and that was true at uh, Zenit St. Petersburg as well, when they got Axel Witzel and um, Hulk and, and their fans just sort of revolted against having non-white players. And, you know, you, you, you have seen players refuse to, to suit up for certain teams and it's not really made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if anything, it sort of plays into the hands of, of the, the actual racists within that fan base that want to see all white teams. And, and it makes it easier for them to weaponize their racism against other teams when they themselves are purely white, right? It just creates a, a bigger color contrast, so to speak. Um, so I, I don't think that works. I really think you have to, you have to begin a pressure campaign within these teams. All right. Well, it sounds like there will be a a lot more work to be done, a lot more coverage of that work. So I look forward to talking to you about uh, that in the future, uh, hopefully with like a slightly better uh, like way of discussing it. Uh, But until then, I want to talk to you about (laughs) one more slightly depressing uh, thing. Uh, Not you as a as a presenter, but you are a a lecturer at uh, Marist College. Uh, Again, reading the bio, you you're teaching sports reporting, uh, sport culture and communication issues in sports media. That is obviously very relevant in the modern era. I think as we're recording this today, Sports Illustrated announced there's going to be layoffs. How do you sort of teach or like what is the advice you give to your students in the modern age of like sh- like pivoting to video, increasing advertisements? Like how much has your sort of curriculum changed from what it would have been 10 or 15 years ago? <laughs> it's, it's funny you should say that because we're actually in the process of, of completely modernizing our curriculum. Um, but, you know, what I tell my students is is and their parents who really want to know is, you know, there is as much sports media being made as as ever. Mm-hmm. There is as much sports TV, as much sports social content, as much video content, as much sports writing as there's ever been. It's just that a lot of the jobs are in different places that they than they used to be, and you have to know where to look for them. And a lot of those jobs are not traditional journalism in the sense that, you know, you might be working for a team or for a league that kind of covers itself, but you're still kind of doing the core functions of a journalist and of a sports writer. And those journalists, whether in traditional media or kind of different forms of it, are sort of asked to do more and more different things. So we really kind of harp on them, knowing how to write, knowing how to shoot, knowing how to um, run social accounts, knowing how to sort of read the metrics of, of social engagement, that kind of thing. I, I think the industry is, is robust. It's just evolving and you have to kind of know how to follow along with that. And in terms of Marist alumni that you're most proud of, is it more Bill O'Reilly or more Rick Smiths? <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be on Team Smiths there. <laughs> that, seems, that seems like a good t- uh, team to be on. Well, Leander, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, if people want to read more from you, hear more from you, how can they do so? Uh, I'm at Yahoo Sports, where I write three soccer columns a week, and they can follow on Twitter at Leander Alphabet. All right, and I will uh, provide a link to the uh, article you wrote about racism in Syria uh, in today's show notes. But I wanted to say one more time, thank you uh, very much for talking about not necessarily the most fun topics, but doing so in a very informative and useful way. Thank you very much for that. It's my pleasure.